Hi, I'm Dr. Rosalind Beer, and you're listening to Further with Founders. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking to business founders within the Further Network. They'll be telling me about their journey so far, the highs and the lows, the bootstrapping and the funding rounds, the business challenges and the human stories. The guest on this episode is Deirdre Lyons of Examfly, ed tech platforms for big service firms. Enjoy the chat. So I'm joined with uh, by Deirdre Lyons of Examfly and Eve Sterling, a partner of Further VC. So uh, Deirdre, thanks so much for coming in today. So I'd love to get a bit of um, an idea around your background before you started Examfly, you know, what you did before that study, etc. and any entrepreneurial hankerings you had growing up. Yeah, and great to be here. Um, yeah, so my background educationally was I studied law and French in college. Um, there was a year of um, Erasmus in, in France and then did a master's in corporate governance um, up in Queens in Belfast. Um, so started off my career as such um, in the professional services world, so trained in tax and PwC, got my qualification there, and that was where I first encountered the world of professional exams, which have become relevant later. Uh, then moved on to wealth management and worked there for a number of years. So basically helping people structure investments, um, passing assets to the next generation, all that. In terms of entrepreneurial leanings, I think it was something that was always there. Like even if I had a waitressing job or a bar job, I'd be pestering the boss with suggestions of what we could do differently or how to improve. I think if anyone in our family had had a business of any kind, like a bakery and undertakers or whatever, I would have loved to be part of it, but that wasn't the case. Um, my father was in the civil service, my mother worked at home. Um, it became the feeling that I wanted to try something in the startup world became really pronounced like after a few years in the wealth management role. Like I was spending all my spare time reading books about startups, entrepreneurial blogs, that kind of a thing. And it just came to a point that it was now or never, I have to try something. Um, But of course, you need an idea. (laughs) So um, in the meantime, I'd been lecturing on the side. Um, So coming back to those professional exams, people sitting tax qualifications. And I noted that the learning model, I felt, was quite outdated. So a lot of what gets called online learning nowadays is simply a 19th century model. So someone talking on a stage that's been taken and put online. So that kind of changes the manner of delivery, doesn't change anything necessarily cognitively in terms of the effectiveness or enjoyment of the learning journey. So that's where the genesis for Examfly was born and then it became just a niche that (laughs) wouldn't go away. So in terms of technology background, did you have any? And if so, what did that mean? And, And when you actually went from the idea to execution, you know, what did that actually look like? So I didn't have a technology background specifically. Since then, um, I've done some studies in artificial intelligence, natural language processing specifically, not from a coding point of view, more conceptually using the tools, knowing the capacities and the the limitations of them. Um, So to create the MVP, I suppose that's a limitation that people often run up against, particularly I've heard it said like female founders that they often don't have as deep a network in the tech scene maybe as their male counterparts. So that can be a barrier. So to get a working um, MVP, so by this stage I had an idea that the learning journey could be made a lot better using technology in these professional exams. Um, To get an MVP together, I 
reached out to some computer science students in Trinity, got them to build a really um, cobbled together version of it. But that was enough to put it in front of people, put it into the hands of students, get them to use it, get some early initial feedback and kind of say, OK, I think there's something in this. And that's kind of all you need. Once you have that, then, you know, you know, there's enough maybe promise to keep going with it. So you had a sort of a working prototype. You had your idea. You got the skills together um were you still working at this stage had you taken the leap or was this you know when when was the point where you kind of said right this is it and I'm going to go full-time at this so the the wise way to do it was probably to do that on the side but um for me I think I felt I was ready for a change so I had left my job at that point and that was through the New Frontiers program um, in Enterprise Ireland. So shortly after I left my job, I went on that program. That's a really good place to start if you have an idea, but not yet a prototype or not yet a clear idea of the business model. So I had a sense that um, there's lots of education products out there, but they often don't find a market or often the pain point isn't acute enough to have a compelling need to use them. Whereas with professional exams, if people don't pass them, if the firms don't get enough people qualified, it's really hitting their bottom line. And it's costly for the students in terms of time, money, career uh, capital. So the New Frontiers programme helped me put the business plan or the ideas for a business model around the ideas for a product. So that was the kind of layer two of it. Do you think, I know you, you went to Trinity and got help there with tech. Do you think it would have helped having a, a CTO or a co-founder looking back? Would, would we, we have a really good CTO now, Eugene. I think things kind of need to happen in the correct sequence for the business at hand. Like it wouldn't have made sense to have to have gone out and hired a CTO at that point because we didn't have any funding. You can't get funding without an, an MVP. Um, it made sense for Eugene to come on when we were a bit more established. If you have someone who's willing to be a co-founder and work kind of for free or for nothing for a while, then yes, absolutely. But if you don't, I think there's lots of ways that you can get to an MVP once your product isn't deep tech. You know, so if it's something like a learning application or an e-commerce thing, there's low and no code tools. There's people out there that you can pay. You just want something to prove the concept. So I don't think it's a big barrier at the start not to have a full-time CTO doesn't hurt but I think you can get to an MVP without it and if you get to an MVP that unlocks a next round of funding possibilities. So who were your main you know in terms of validation market validation who were you going after was it the was it the student or was it the institution or you know who are you trying to go after everyone? Um, so initially just for testing we put it in the hands of the students because that was a lot more around the product like is it something that students will like but we felt that in terms of a business model, it made more sense to go to the firms. So they're the ones that are paying to put students through these professional exams. So they're employees, essentially. And it's a huge cost to them annually in terms of study leave, in terms of materials, instead of extra tuition. Um, so that was our goal from the start. Um, my background was in one of the big four. So they were the ones that we went to first, um, having done, you know, a kind of trial thing with Chartered Accountants Ireland. So we're lucky enough that uh, the first one we went to said yes. Um, so we launched with them in 2021. And now we're in three of the big four in Ireland and we're launching with one of the big four in the UK next month. So that was kind of the sequence for us. It made sense to to go that route okay and just in terms of funding then so was it was it bootstrapped from the start you got the csf funding um so talk to us about that so once you have an mvp that tends to unlock some early stage enterprise ireland funding so it was csf at the time um it's now changed to 100 grand uh convertible yeah exactly 
Um, so if you can get to that point, and then if you can put a nice business model around it, you've got a good chance of getting that funding. And from there, it was like, okay, great. I've bought myself a year. I know I can build something and sell it. So that's that was the first version of the product. Once we had built and like sold it or the contracts were nearly concluded with that big for a customer and we got great feedback from Charity Accountants Ireland, I immediately launched our pre-seed round. So I suppose at that point, um, we had a working product. We had a very good idea of the type of customer that we were going after. We had some early traction, some early revenue. Um, from the background, the, the place that I had worked, you know, I had a decent network of people who would be in a position to do angel investments. So I suppose I had the tax knowledge that I could pull together the investor tax relief. So we were able to raise um, a 600k pre-seed round at the end of 2020, which was made up of 350 privately and then co-funded uh, with 250 from Enterprise Ireland under the HPSU program. Okay, I just I'll come back to the funding mm. in a second, but just to be honest, you make it sound quite easy. So can you just talk to us about resilience? So it just seems like you had a lot of insight from your own career doing exams. Then you had the contacts and network, you know, and I know it's not that way. So just talk to us about the resilience, the tough, the tough times, the times when you didn't have money or when you were really sort of, is this going to work? Yeah, and I think that's kind of the nature of the passage of time. It kind of smooths over the, the bits that felt very, very rocky at the time. No, there were definitely like a lot of challenges and a lot of self-doubt along the way. So there were points, um, say, for example, when I finished New Frontiers, there was a gap between that happening of maybe three months and getting CSF, where I guess I essentially had no income, you know, I was living on savings. Every time I would go home, my father would look at me mournfully, like wondering why I had given up a good job (laughs) and like remind me that the tax on my car was out. And I think in that period of time, we got turned down for two funding opportunities. So if it wasn't for little things like, um, John, the you'd meet someone and they'd say, no, I think you're onto something. Keep going. Give it another month, you know, and just see, apply for the CSF and just see. And getting, say, help with my CSF application, which I did from the guys at Further, um, yeah, there was, it never got bad enough to consider quitting um there were tough days um but then we would always get maybe a piece of good news a nice email for from someone a bit of validation i think one of the main resources as a founder that you have is your optimism levels so you have to do everything you can to keep those high so reading blogs of other founders reading paul graham's blog so that you get to understand that this is very normal that an early stage things feel difficult and like you're almost pushing everything by hand and if you don't push nothing will move um, and then slowly things take on a bit of a life their own you get a bit of a momentum and stuff kind of starts happening a bit more organically um, so yeah you probably get the smoothed out version of things um, earlier uh, but yeah I talked to you earlier on it might have been a different story yeah, yeah. so um, so just back to the funding so you did successfully raise and you went from CSF on so um Again, was that was that process, as you said, you got help from further EI, you know, was that difficult? Um, it was during COVID. Um, so I think as someone who's a bit more introverted, in hindsight, it kind of was okay for me to meet people on Zoom rather than in person. Um, and I think as well, there was probably a few things going in our favour. So COVID had accelerated the move to online learning, but I think it had also highlighted that not all online learning was created equally. Um, so I think we had a good message. We had some good big name early customers. 
from doing New Frontiers, from working with the further guys, I think the business model was decent. And, you know, me coming out from a particular domain didn't hurt. You know, I could get my head around the financials aspects of the business model. So that raise, thankfully, wasn't as bad as I nearly had expected. Um, you know, it remains to be seen how things go in future, but that one was okay. There were some tough times and some rejections, but I think one thing that helped is that I stopped taking stuff personally. So, you know, previously, if anyone had, you know, made a critique of the product or of the business model, I feel mortally offended, but that's not... Child. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Or it's you, yeah. But then I started realising, no, this is actually very helpful and better they tell me. And if I'm going to get offended every time anyone says something like that, then I'm not going to last in this game. So okay. um, I think stuff like really maintaining a good like health and fitness yeah. routine helped a lot. Like I'm, I'm, I really enjoy running, so I think I ran out a lot of frustrations <laughs> on the roads of Dublin 8 and Dublin 12 so I think uh, yeah that helped like having that balance yeah. and mm-hmm. yeah so just to, to uh, get Neve to come in there so obviously companies who were you know startups right through to trying to scale up you know what is it that investors are looking at and, and some of maybe what Deirdre shared with us that you can yeah, I think it's really interesting when you look at Deirdre's uh, journey and that, you know, she's uh, is spinning out of these, you know, large corporations because she knows that there's actually a real world problem there. And I know I've mentioned this uh, before, um, you know, understanding that that actually this is a big problem that needs to be solved is always going to be a big piece for us, the founding team. So if you've got somebody who knows how to do this, you know, listen to you and thinking you have an unfair advantage now, just, uh, you know, knowing that uh, how to do your your financials. And, you know, we talk about unfair advantage in a marketplace all the time, but as a founder, sometimes that happens too. Uh, you know, so you're coming in with a good set, a, a really uh, robust financial model and that when you're coming in to, to, um, uh, to talk to, be it angels or, or be it venture capital. Um, I guess, from a venture capital perspective, and this isn't related to example, I, this is every company that we'd look at, is is this market big enough? Um, you know, uh, is going to be a key piece. So yes, there might be a problem to solve. Yes, people might be able to, to part with their cash to solve this problem. But are there enough of them? You know, and, and are the ticket sizes, how much work do you have to do? So we're looking at those kind of those kind of metrics. Um, and, and that's going to be, a, you know, a key deciding factor for us. Absolutely, it always comes back to teams. When you've got a team who, you know, who understands the space um, and, and, has approve, and has proven that they can sell into the space. Uh, and not only, like, you, know, you see Deirdre and she's um, um, sold into, you know, what was you know, your employer effectively, the first company that you worked with, she's then gone and done that again and again and again, you know, um, and these are, you know, global companies, great, that's, a, you know, that's a, that's that's what you want to see, like where they're, you know, it isn't just, uh, we are always invested in um, um, export-driven companies, um, be it Angel or be, be it VC, so you want to see actually that, that, that really start to expand across the markets and not necessarily the vertical, like example, I as a, you know, you've a, um, not an arrow vertical, but you, you know, you know who your what your niche is and who that target market is, but there are other markets um, and other geographies. Uh, so it a lot of that depends on the on the company, but again, it always comes back to you know is this a really good solid founding team, um, and are they going to be able to deliver on their milestones? Um, and you know, vision absolutely is really important as well. Um, but yeah, okay, super. We'll touch on that. Um, so just just to ask you, you know. For others listening in on their journey and I think it's fascinating that you've gone from you know a one woman 
show basically and just scaled it up and got a team behind you it's 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 a fabulous story um and again you know you saw a problem that you were experiencing and you could identify and i think you know you had that natural inclination to try and problem solve but to others listening you know what advice would you give them um you know in terms of what you've learned on the journey and that you would tell to yourself you know way back when you started yeah um i think one thing is the power of iteration and what I mean by that is sometimes we look at the success stories like the Stripes or the Airbnbs and it can be really hard to visualise that one day that was just a few people sitting on their couches and having the hard times and eating the pot noodle and with a relatively crude looking early version of their products. Um, I think that psychologically, maybe this can be a female thing a little bit as well. People can find it difficult to say like, oh, my MVP doesn't look like all those apps that I use <laughs> every day. Um, but it could be enough to get you there. You put it in the hands of people, get some feedback, and then that might attract some funding. Um, and just be aware that um, compared to the corporate world, you're looking in the corporate world, if you have to write a report or prepare, say, a tax computation or something, you'd want to get at least nine out of 10 from the get go. In the startup world, things improve by iteration. So say the first version of your business plan might be a four out of 10, but then give it to some smart people, get some feedback. The next version is a six, the next version's a nine, and then you can give it to people like to the actual funders. So the power of iteration, I think, is something that's really important, particularly in the startup world and something that people who are coming from a more corporate background where they're used to maybe always succeeding first time don't necessarily appreciate. So just be prepared for that. Okay. And I liked as well, you touched on the fact of um, your runner and that kind of balance. And I think sometimes, you know, some entrepreneurs can experience burnout or just really work and not have a kind of a balance. So do you think that that's important in terms of maintaining yourself and the, going the long distance? That is massively important. I think Paul Graham says that most found, most startups don't fail because of competitors maybe not even because of market size, because their product is bad. They generally fail because the founders run out of steam. All other things being equal or run out of willpower, just will. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. it is um, a very psychologically difficult thing to do, like against major odds to try and build something, to put yourself out there, to hustle, to get told no and all that. So I think the right mindset and philosophy around it is key. And it took me a while to get there. I think in the early days, I used to put a lot of my worth on in terms of like how I was doing career-wise or it's almost like how example I was doing was related to how I would feel about myself and I worked really hard actually just to get away from that and now I think I do have a much more balanced kind of view of it it's like okay I will do my absolute best to make this work but I'm still a person of value if it doesn't and I know that probably sounds very obvious but it actually took me a while to internalize that so with that mindset, you know, the startup world is a roller coaster, but you don't have to be on the roller coaster at every turn. You can just watch it sometimes and be like, okay, that happened, Grant. The next thing will be a good thing and so on. And there's a tweet that I saw before from Naval Ravikant. He, um, yeah, founder of AngelList, writes a lot about the startup world that I found very helpful and like pinned to the wall, but it's... Uh, don't take yourself so seriously. You're just a monkey with a plan. <laughs> like, I just love that. It's yeah. like, and 
yeah, during the tough times, like me and the team, we just like send ourselves like tweets along those lines. So I think all that helps, you know. And keep that morale. Yeah. And do you think surrounding yourself with a good team is critical as, as well? You seem to have a really good team at Examfly. Yeah, very, very lucky. So we have Ashling, who's coming from an education background, who's also majorly creative and probably one of the hardest working people I've ever known. She can turn her hand to anything. So she helps marry the technology with the science of scale acquisition. Then we have Eugene who's our head of engineering with a background specifically in edtech and gaming. So he's built our proprietary platform. So back to the point on iteration, like our early version was built on WordPress, kind of cheap and cheerful, whereas this one now is very future-proof for a lot of the stuff we want to do with generative AI and future integrations. And Kyle, who's working on the animation side, um, I think aside from their skill sets, which are very, very impressive and their work ethic and stuff, it's kind of value system. So it's all people who are driven by doing good job. So I have to do very little of what we call management. It's more we set the vision together and you can kind of count on people to get things done. And it reduces the communication overload. So I'm not having to overly explain every time what we're trying to do, or you're not worried about being misinterpreted or taken in bad faith. Like everyone has cranky days, including me, but I think we all know that we just want to get the best product out there and give the company the best chance of success so yeah Touchwood I feel very lucky to have the team that I have. Super so just on that vision so my last question um so what's next for Xamfly and what do you hope to achieve in the next few years? I think commercially we aim to be premium provider for professional firms globally I think that's something we can do using a technology first approach so in other words, if wave one of online learning, as I said, was taking the existing stuff and just moving it online, we want to be at the forefront of the next generation, like really having a much more major impact and much more effective guarantees of learning for the individuals and for the firms. So all the stuff now that's around about ChatGPT and the large language models, that's kind of critical to us in our scalability. Like we've been looking at that for the... Um, last few years at least. So building an engine to help us deliver that at scale. So to Neve's point about large margins, or sorry, large markets, <laughs> Freudian slip, but um, there, um, yeah, um, that if we can crack it in this niche, that there's plenty of adjacent markets, there's plenty of other geographies. If we can build the engine for production using generative AI, which we've gone a decent amount of the way towards doing, um, yeah, I see that as part of the plan. So there's a lot in the mix, but the bigger vision is becoming that next wave of online learning. And just personally then, what's your own vision? Is this your baby? I mean, is this it? Is this what you've... I know you say you're yeah. separating yourself from... Yeah. Do you want to see this kind of grow to the, the capacity that it can? I want to see it reach its potential. <laughs> I want maybe me as a CEO to reach my potential. Like, I do find it very intellectually fulfilling. So running a startup, it's almost like having a giant Ruby cube where every time you move one square of it, it has several knock-on effects. So you're always thinking two or three steps ahead. And it's, yeah, I find that very satisfying. <laughs> Strangely enough, I remember when I was in the corporate world and I really liked my jobs and worked with nice people. But I remember thinking I'd love to have a job that I cared enough about to want to be thinking about it in my spare time all the time. I thought they, it felt that intellectually stimulating enough to do that yeah. and it's certainly that for better or worse and also to know that we're helping people so I think um, 
they're like I didn't come from a background where there was accountants or tax people or people in professional services in my family. I think what we're doing with exam flight through animations, gaming techniques, I know I haven't talked a lot about the product, it kind of democratizes some of these difficult subjects where there can be barriers to entry for people with from non-traditional backgrounds, if you know what I mean. So that's also very satisfying. So there's a lot in the mix to keep me driven and motivated and we're nowhere near, I suppose, achieving all that we want to achieve. So yeah, there's plenty to go on to keep us busy for the next four or five years anyway. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Such an inspiring story. You're such an inspiring person as well. And I'm just excited to see where Examflight goes. And thank you to Neve as well for joining us. Thanks, Melanie. You've been listening to the Further With Founders podcast. I'm Dr. Rosalind Beer. I'm looking forward to you joining us on our next episode.